From Serenity Lane Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers, a new podcast about rock bottoms, moments of clarity, and life after addiction. This is Voices of Recovery. I just didn't feel like I got the right script in life or I was missing how to be normal. After that, my addiction had just completely took a spiral. I looked in that bathroom mirror and I had one of those God-shot epiphanies, if you will. I literally saw these tombstones where my eyes used to be. And either I die, or I make it out of it, and I will have screwed everything up so bad by that point that I will have to get help and somehow try to get sober. Today is my one-year sober anniversary, and I am doing a podcast. And I'm very happy about it. Welcome to Voices of Recovery. I'm your host, Jackie Danziger. Today we bring you the story of Nate and his family. Close-knit, fun-loving, successful. We all know a family like them. Nate was, by his own description, that guy. The one who had it all together. The job, the house, the friends. On paper, he looked great. What follows is the story of how he spiraled down through pills, drugs, and finally, after many years of digging, reached his bottom. It's a story increasingly familiar in families throughout the country. In this episode, we ask, how does addiction affect families? And what families are affected by addiction? What does it look like to become an addict? What are the checkboxes, the signs, the symptoms? What does it mean to hit a bottom? And how the hell does anyone get sober? For Nate, it started with a desk job and some feelings. Nate never imagined becoming an addict. Addiction didn't start for him until he was about 25 years old. He drank and partied in college, but it never caused any major problems. It was usually part of a social situation. He didn't have a troubled upbringing or anything like that. But from an early age, Nate struggled to feel good about himself. You know, I always grew up insecure about just... I don't know, just confidence issues and insecure about friends and how I look, just what people thought of me. Yeah, growing up my whole whole life, really, and I was, you know, I was just afraid that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't popular enough, that I wasn't, that I wasn't kind of what people wanted me to be, whatever that was, you know, whatever I built up in my mind. And that pressure didn't come from my parents or other people, things that people had said to me. It was more internal. After graduating from college with his bachelor's, Nate left his home in Eugene and moved to Portland. I just wanted to be happy, you know, I was searching for something to make me happy. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. In my mind, I had kind of glorified working for a big corporation, job titles and money and things like that. And so at the time, that's what I was searching for. When I was about 25 is when I started working for a bigger corporation and, and did pretty well. A lot of opportunities, a lot of perks and things like that. You know, I bought a house. I had bought a car that I really liked. You know, I felt good. I, I had a lot of people around me, things like that but I, I remember before my addiction got bad was I was surrounded by all these things and people and I still felt lonely. Nate soon realized that in order to keep it all together he was going to need a little help. The job that I was working at was kind of a desk job it involved a lot of data and information and compiling all that and sitting at a desk all day really just to put that that focus and time in and it was really sensitive material that I was working with to where you can't really have errors and so to focus eight to ten hours a day I went to my doctor and started getting Adderall prescriptions in the beginning I was thinking it was that I had symptoms of ADD but also yeah I, I liked the way it made me feel looking back I think I do have symptoms of ADD but looking back it was just that I was doing something that didn't 
catch my attention. It didn't, it didn't interest me. It didn't motivate me. You know, the doctor kept upping my doses and then I was using more than he was even prescribing. So then I would get it from other people that I knew. I was always stimulated, always sleeping just a few hours a night on top of work, working out, going out, and I just burnt out, really. It just, whatever level it was mentally and physically, it was burning out. And so to find ways to relax in my mind was when I started taking the pain pills. The pain pills Nate was buying ran about 40 to $50 each. Maintaining his habits started to drain his budget. At the beginning, it seemed like I could handle it, you know, because I was like, oh, a pill would last me for two, three, four days, you know, so 40, that's not bad, right, in my mind. And then slowly as my addiction got worse and, and uh, I started doing more, it turned into a one a day and then two a day and then basically as, as much as I could get. And so my budget on a monthly basis was probably $1,500 or so. I remember about six months or so after I started using that I started noticing that, that was like all I thought about and it was pretty all-consuming. And I still remember having the thought like, oh, is this like what addiction is? It was definitely starting to take over. At first, again, like I said, it, it started out as a thing at night, maybe on a Friday, Saturday night. And then it started every day after work, say, to relax. And then it started being in the morning, uh, before work, and then during work and after work and all the time. And at first I was functioning all right, you know, because I felt, I felt good. And then when the money started getting tighter and things like that, the times in between use, would there be gaps? And that's when I had my first real experience with like physical withdrawals. Another key hallmark of addiction is withdrawal and cravings. Mental obsession and physical symptoms turn casual use into a daily necessity. My performance really declined. It, it started, you know, like I said, I mean, I was using at work. I would leave work to go get more pills, things like that. My focus and, func and functioning was just not there anymore. By 2011, the situation in Portland had become miserable. All the things that Nate had worked to achieve were now in jeopardy. He couldn't focus at work his social life had become non-existent, and his drug habit and lifestyle had left Nate with almost $19,000 of credit card debt. In another move, well known to alcoholics and addicts, Nate decided to make what's known in recovery speak as a geographic, short for a geographical cure. Pick up and move in the hopes that a change of scenery will fix your problems. I decided to make a change in that I was just miserable what I was doing. And so I basically just kind of picked up and left. I quit my job, sold my house, and I just picked up and moved down to Eugene, again, hoping that a relocation would be the fix for everything. What did you think was going to happen in Eugene, and then what happened instead? What I thought was going to happen in Eugene was, again, I, I didn't recognize that the issue lied within me. It was, it was, I thought it was the location and the drugs all around me. From the outside, it still looked like things were okay. You know, I was maintaining, like I said, my lifestyle with credit cards and then whatever money I had left. They just knew that I would talk to my mom and she just knew that something wasn't right. Like, and they were thinking it was more that I was just really unhappy with my job, things like that. When Nate was first started to use drugs, we were naive and we probably helped him with every excuse as to why his behavior was like that. We helped him move uh, from Portland back to Eugene, just thinking that we could fix whatever was wrong. This is Nate's mom, Chris. She and Don, Nate's dad, had no idea the extent of the problem yet. 
We thought it was mainly job dissatisfaction and not dealing well with that at, in Portland and referring to what Chris just said, we helped him come back down. Uh, but we ha there was such a time lag on the reality of his drug addiction, what he was going through, and what we thought was going on. After moving back to Eugene, Nate's pill usage escalated. New regulation had made it increasingly difficult to access prescription meds in Oregon, which caused the price to surge to almost $100 a pill. This combination of factors pushed Nate to start smoking heroin. My first time using heroin, it brought a sense of relief. You know, it was that, that high that I was looking for. You know, I've heard people say, and it's kind of it was true, it's like, no matter what's going on around you, it, it numbs that. You know, I've heard somebody say your house could be burning down around you and you wouldn't care. It, at the time, it gives you relief, but at the same time, it's just destroying everything. Before then, you know, I had, again, no experience with addiction or what it looked like. And in my mind, I guess I probably still thought of the person under the bridge, you know, that people think of. And But no, I, I could have never imagined myself using heroin, being an addict, anything like that. Again, it comes down to that you're kind of controlled by something to do and say and, and act in ways you wouldn't. So any thoughts that I would never do heroin were out the window the second that you start feeling sick or that you can't you know, find your fix some other way. And so in my mind, I mean, something that's cheaper and stronger sounded like a pretty good transition. I don't think I, at that point, I don't think I had any hangups about it, you know, cause it was just kinda at that point what I was doing. This is when Nate's addiction fully took a hold of him. He was spending about $200 a day on drugs. He and his girlfriend were living in a house owned by Nate's parents, but they struggled to make rent and the situation was increasingly chaotic. It's at this point that his parents knew something was up. They knew something was wrong, like, because uh, my behavior, the way I acted, I was always just sitting around or sleeping and doing, they, they thought something was physically, like, wrong with me. They were thinking that, like, I had a brain tumor or something was really wrong with me, you know, because they, that was the furthest from their mind that I'd be using heroin and stuff like that. In hindsight, uh, it, it went on a long time, and we... I don't know if we'd call it part of the problem, but we certainly were enablers. It's our personality. I never met a problem before this that I couldn't fix. They handled it a lot better than I thought. Like I thought it would be a like just an explosion. They handled it a lot more understanding and, and concerned. I think one of our problems, him growing up, that I have owned is that I always tried to protect him from disappointment. And in this case, I think I tried to protect him from what I considered the worst consequences, and uh, now I realize that my definition of the bottom was not his definition of the bottom. I wanted it far more than he did. After discovering the extent of Nate's drug use, his parents insist that he check into a 30-day treatment program to get clean. First treatment experience was, I mean, I didn't want to be there. <laughs> um, that was just uh, the beginning of that road of you know where like addiction leads is the jails or institutions and death so that was my first time being there and, and really because i'm really good at like following rules if i need to and you kind of go a little bit unnoticed if there's other people being more open about needing help so it was really just something i wasn't ready to do now we know he just went because we put forced him into a corner but as we found out later he was sneaking out and doing all these things Nate decided to leave treatment after 18 days in Serenity Lane. When patients leave early, they leave ACA, which is against clinical advice. The people at 
Serenilane were very against it, of course. You know, they've heard it, you know, I'm sure a million times of people not wanting to be there and things like that and um, all their reasons. So, yeah, they were not supportive of it at all. My parents were mixed about it because, again, at that point, we were all so naive still about addiction and, and what it all entailed. At the time, I truly believed that I was ready to just start living my life. I, I remember telling my parents and start getting back on track. And at the time, I really believed that. And looking back, it was really like my addict was trying to get out and start using again. He, he called and said he wanted to, he was done. He had, he was good. He wanted to come home. And that was one of Don and my conflict because Don went and picked him up and I did not want him to come home. I just knew in my heart he wasn't ready so that was that was well, that a failure. Happened twice. We he went through Willamette family also for a couple of weeks or well, three. Well, he finished whatever. thirty days there. Did used he? within yeah. a week. As you may have just heard in that clip, Nate's parents went through this process with him a few times, and they didn't always know what was best. I mean, he's clean and healthy, and you know, he looked like, hey, the old Nate is back, and. Sure, okay. Again, we didn't realize how much that addiction still had a hold of him. So yeah, we were okay with, okay, you're gonna follow the pathway and all's well, right? Move on with your life. <laughs> you know, I one of the things I learned <laughs> is that I deal with what is, not what I wished it was. And so uh, when he came home, you know, we just did our best to deal with what was there. Within just a couple of weeks, Nate was using again. He had successfully gotten sober, but he couldn't stay sober. For me personally, once the ideas start getting in my head, I start feeling really anxious and really, really anxious, really unsettled. It was all I could think about and really just like kind of romanticizing in my mind about using. At this point, so I'm living at home with my parents. They know that I'm using again, and I think they kind of just feel like hopeless about it, you know, because they're very like hands-on, very, you know, can-do people. And so they realized they couldn't necessarily fix it and they kind of were just tired of dealing with it. And so I, I didn't really, even though I was living in their house, we didn't have much contact. We avoided each other really for a whole year by the the room that I was staying in had its own entrance really. And so I would just come in and out of there and it was really just passing. And, and again, the only times we would talk was just them being so frustrated because they knew what was going on, but they just couldn't deal with it anymore. After dropping out of treatment, Nate makes the jump from smoking heroin to using needles to shoot it intravenously. This is where his life starts to completely revolve around drugs. He's increasingly losing control of his behavior. Of course, Chris and I, we talked about it all the time. One time at home, another really bad episode, you know, Nate was in full addiction. He was camped out in her back bedroom. We are in the total enablement mode. He would just live on the the bed there, watch TV, he'd eat and live on pizzas, you know, and doing drugs back there. We didn't know. But one time we went in the bathroom and Chris did and he was on the toilet with his fists clenched around a spoon and a syringe and he, he was kind of passed out. She thought he had died. You hear an overdose. And he was leaning against the wall and she yelled for me. I came in and we shook him and he clutching the syringe, he still was denying he was using. Finally, we, we got smart, <laughs> and but yeah, it's harsh, and, and you know, you love your son deeply, and you know, Nate and I, we've always, I, I mean, we hug and kiss each other on the cheek, and you know, we've always been a loving, hugging type person and family. It went on so long that, of course, our biggest fear is that he would die, 
but right along with that is that we would deal with this the rest of our lives. In addiction, a bottom can be a huge and spectacular event, but it can also just be a moment of surrender after a series of disasters. As you're in this, you become dysfunctional too. Your thought process becomes warped. You're in a reality that nobody else understands. We're, you know, think we're pretty high-functioning people and making good decisions and doing these things, and we're just flying by the seat of our pants trying to survive, trying to figure out what to do next. I, for the first time in my life, I felt really dysfunctional. You know, it's classic cases of enabling, and, and you could see as the worse, like, my addiction got, the more they understood, and they started backing off at that point. You know, and again, that was when things went really downhill, but up until that point, like I mentioned, with living in their house, they withdrew all that. We had heard the first time Nate came to Serenity Lane, and we had heard about enabling, and I what I learned was that every parent or support has their own journey, just like every addict does. You can hear it. People can tell you that you need to not enable them, that you need to cut them off, that you need to do that. But just like Nate had to get to his bottom, we had to get to our bottom. And no, I don't believe that anything anyone told me would have made me cut him off sooner. It just came to survival. One of the last times we talked is they gave me, they told me that in a month they were gonna kick me out, that I couldn't live there anymore, and so it was up to me to find a place to live. And of course I didn't do anything about it, I just kept using. I was just trying to help keep him from getting an extensive criminal record, from dying, initially from being, maybe even being uncomfortable. When we put him out of our house, we gave him a car. <laughs> Nate's parents can't take it anymore, so they kick him out of the house. But they give him a car loaded up with supplies, food, sleeping bag, and then they drop him off downtown. It's winter at this point, and they tell him they're done. I always feel like I can solve anything and I can do something, but the realization was I was no match for an addict. You just have no clue how manipulative they can be, how strong their drive is, combined with your just desire to believe them and to, to hope, um, you're just no match for an addict. As Chris and Don struggled to cope with Nate's addiction, they found strength in one another. We tried to be really open with each other about what we were doing to at this point, enable Nate. I didn't sneak around and give him money or do things for him. We tried to be really open about what we were doing, and we didn't judge how the other person was reacting to what was going on in our lives. We kind of gave each other space to let our personalities deal with it however we could. The one thing is, which people are surprised at, is that it actually made Don and I closer because I saw strengths in him that I probably hadn't appreciated. He, he did the hard work when it came to putting Nate out and dealing with him. I think we felt like we were the ones who really understood what was going on and we were supportive of each other. We would just lay in bed at night and hug each other and cry. I mean, who else are you going to do that? And again, with me, it was just an increased respect for that. My mom, her way kind of dealing with that at the time was she didn't really want anything to do with me because it, it just was so much stress and hurt for her. 
I remember when I had just had enough. I just couldn't take it anymore. And Don was sitting in the chair and he said, I just can't give up. My dad, he was more removed, but he couldn't let he couldn't let me go as far as like fully, you know, I didn't have like daily contact or anything like that, but like he would come and see me if I ran out of gas maybe, or would bring me food. Don's love, food is love. You know, he would take Nate, Nate would be parked behind some gas station and Don would take him a hamburger. Some of those minimal things to kind of like keep contact. Cause I think the idea of completely no contact, me being having no idea what was going on with me would just be, it was torture for him. Nate and I were laughing about how many uh, shirts he had. I told him, I kept thinking if I just dressed him nice, he'd act nice. (laughs) (laughs) Nate's parents kicked him out, but they couldn't stop enabling him. But now he had lost the stability of a home. Life was stressful. It got a lot more stressful, a lot more real. I was talking to somebody the other day, and right now, like, imagine going and living in my car. It seems like a ridiculous idea and, a, you know, like a, like a miserable experience. But at the time, you know, looking back, that's where, like, I, I see the drugs just taking effect and having such an effect on me that I was okay with it for, for to a certain extent. Uh, as long as I had my car and could run around town and do what I was doing, in my mind, I felt okay. There was, again, stressful, and it was wintertime, it was cold and things like that, but it seemed like a price to pay to keep using. How did you figure out the basic necessities? Where where, and how often were you showering, for example? <laughs> Ooh, the basic necessities, yeah. Um, that came down to like showering and things like that. Food, I would eat a little bit here and there. Just, I mean, that was always secondary or, you know, third down the line to using. Uh, showering, I laugh because, you know, sometimes there'd be people that I knew that I could shower at their house, but there was one time when I went to go to my parents' house and they weren't home and I think I I used the garden hose in the back of the house, you know, and so it's just, and it was cold out, you know, and, but it was those things like that that I did and it was because I was trying to semi look presentable. As things became increasingly desperate, Time kept marching on. That year, Nate spent Christmas living in his car. He barely remembers the actual day and says that holidays were pretty much non-existent when he was using. They weren't a time for celebration. They were really just a sad reminder of what was going on. I think that was part of this thing was he always could come to our house. Even when he was on the street, he would come in, get cleaned up, you know, hey, can I have 20 bucks? You know, I, I mean, like I remember him knocking on the door on Christmas Eve, expecting us to have probably money, not presents for him. And, you know, I think we gave him $20, you know, that seemed to be the going rate. And he just stood there like, is that all? You know, he, he knew, he, you know, he knew, he thought he knew that he could always come there. And he did drag us along and caught him. Sometimes we give him the $20 just to get rid of him, you know, just get him out of our space. Mm-hmm. But I think that was, I think that as it started to move away, especially when we just said, you can't come to our house, we can't, when I would not answer him, he, he knew that he was gonna lose us. Nate's parents eventually broke down and let him move back home with the agreement that he would start treatment again. As he was waiting to check in, he started to feel anxious worried he was going to get sick from withdrawal. So he came up with a plan to get money to buy drugs. I was at my parents' house, and I convinced my dad that I wanted to just go to, to the store with him, you know, just hang out. 
He got himself all cleaned up and he came out and he was energized like he'd had three cups of coffee and he wanted to go to Cabela's. Well, okay, you know, I was just so surprised to see the energetic, you know, hey, up off the couch sort of thing. So we got cleaned up. We went over there and we're going up and down aisles looking at different things. We weren't together all the time. But suddenly, you know, the suspicion index is coming out. I didn't know the fine details, but I knew he had stolen things. To what level, I had not a clue. He even warned me ahead of time. He's like, don't be stealing and don't be doing anything, you know, to get in trouble. I went down one aisle when he wasn't looking, and I thought I saw him kind of, you know, get into his coat or something. And I said, don't you even think about taking anything today? And he said, oh, I'm not, I'm not. Nate was looking for things he could sell or trade. He stole night vision cameras and other high-ticket items ranging from four to $500. A few minutes later, we were leaving the store and we got about 15 steps out. And a, two or three guys, they're security people. And this woman, she darted around and just got right in his face, and which was smart of them. You know, you don't get a big, heavy, burly guy against a big, burly guy. And he just kind of stood there and, and I said, Nate, you didn't. And so, you know, all this happened in front of my dad. You know, he's totally innocent. It's just like, you know, just a horrifying experience like for him. I remember I was sitting in their security office there and was feeling pretty scared and shameful for sure. It was really like the first time I'd ever been caught after like years, really. And I thought they were going to slap his wrist and we'd, I'd be driving him home. Well, they kept him behind closed doors and ended up, you know, I went home and said, well, tell them to call when they're done. No, they called Springfield police and arrested him, and shocking. There wasn't much for him to stick around for. I know that he had to go home, and my mom was wondering where I was at, and he had to tell her that I'd been arrested. So that was a big shock and, and issue going on. Did he say goodbye? What was the last thing he said to you before you went off to jail? The last thing he said to me was probably, probably you're an idiot or something like that. You know, I mean, I know that he was, because, you know, he had warned me ahead of time. He knew, he knew. And that was just a show of the obsession and, and just, you know, who wants to embarrass their father like that and themselves? And who would want to do that if it wasn't some obsession for, like, using and drugs? When he got arrested, he tried the same thing. He called, he started, you know, you've got to bail me out. You've got to do this or that. You've got to do this. And we're just like, no, we're not going to. And he kept it up. We did go to court when he was sentenced. And he shared with us, I mean, it was a shock. It, you, know, you just realize we're people who always have <laughs> tried to do the right thing. And he shared with us that the guy sitting next to him said, your parents look so normal. My parents came to court at my court hearing, and that was the first time they ever knew anybody that had been arrested. So that was like where it stood out that it can affect anybody. Yeah, I was totally devastated. But that was also a good thing because they locked him up for a couple weeks and that kept him away from drugs. Uh, he was miserable, but clean for a couple weeks. Nate is taken to Springfield Jail, where he is put into solitary to withdraw from drugs. While there, he spends his 30th birthday behind bars. Did you, um, did you visit him in jail for his birthday? No. <laughs> yeah. I called and asked the guard how he's doing. He said, fine. I said, I, <laughs> I guess there's no birthday cake in jail. He said, nope. Nate detoxes off of heroin in prison, but he's surrounded by other addicts who are just waiting to use again. After his release, Nate's parents convinced him to check back into treatment. After I left jail, that obsession was still there. I used in the couple of days in between my getting out of jail on a Friday and my going to treatment on Monday. He was supposed to go into treatment and they suggested that they pick him up. And he says, can I just have one night home with you? You know, he's had 
20, 30 days clean. Can I have one night home with you? Blah, blah, blah. And he uh, went out and used and uh, went into the program, you know, uh, high. And then, um, you know, he just wasn't ready. It wasn't enough. Treatment was a decision that basically my parents made that I went along with because I had nowhere else to go, nothing else to do. So at that point, again, it was just, there was nothing in me that wanted to do it yet. From this point, Nate bounces in and out of recovery houses, continuously checking in and getting kicked out for using drugs. His parents just try to cope with his repeated relapses. We did get in this kind of just short-term survival mode where Nate was in at least six recovery houses. And because we have, you know, middle-class money, we had some extra money, as soon as he'd get cleaned up enough to pass an interview, we would go pay the money, put him in a recovery house, hope they didn't find, you know, that he could do weeks or two weeks, anything to get us a breathing room. Or we would take him, put him in a hotel, you know, pay cash for it so we weren't... Hotel six. (laughs) (laughs) Just to get him away from us. So we just got on this short-term day-by-day survival mode and not knowing what was going to happen. But I think eventually where that led to, you know, we're retired. I work part-time. But where we realized we're going to be, you know, we could be 80 and dealing with this and not have the strength or the resources to deal with it. I think that was the beginning of we have to save ourselves. Nate's parents finally hit their breaking point. Up until now, their attempts to cut off contact always resulted in some form of enabling. Whether it was bailing them out with money or food, they finally realized the only way to save themselves was to fully cut ties with Nate. What happened with him is that I finally had just had enough and I would not have anything to do with him. And we put him out and um, I have to give Don all kinds of credit for that because he did the hard work. He drove him and left him. We finally abandoned him and I gave him $400 and I dropped him off at a little motel in West Eugene. I said, do not call me until you're ready for full recovery mode. and. I fully expected to hear next time to either never hear from him or that he'd be dead. One of the statistics, which breaks your heart, but, you know, there's a cold side at that point that you realize the reality of it. But that was extremely difficult. It's like throwing the survivor off the lifeboat. Uh, You know, this may be the end. But, you know, there had been so many things leading up to it that... As terrible and harsh as that sounds, that was reality. You know, you almost get in that self-preservation mode. You've helped, you've helped, you've helped, you enabled. I, I don't know how many countless times I rescued him on the freeway, in a parking lot, his tire would be flat, he'd be out of gas, out of money. Somebody stole my wallet, uh, you know, the thousand and one things that you hear. And we had rescued him, but this time, you know, we had, Chris and I, we'd talked together and brought us, I think, in pretty close harmony as far as, you know, what to do with the reality of it. It, We'd finally caught up to that reality, so to speak. People in recovery sometimes jokingly refer to a period where a person tries to get sober but can't as step zero, the cycle of sobriety followed by relapse, going around and around, knowing that you need to stop but not being able to stay stopped. The cycle repeated itself for me, but it worse. I didn't have a car at this point. I didn't have any sort of support at this point. And then, so yeah, I became being homeless, living with people I knew, bouncing around, living in hotels, just barely scraping by, you know, criminal activity. 
continued. As far as like the day to day, I mean, it was always a grind one way or another from the second you wake up, which, you know, there was definitely times when I didn't want to wake up. It was just like trying to sleep my life away. And I'd wake up in the morning and I wouldn't want to do anything, but I knew if I didn't get up, even if, though I felt like crap, if I didn't get up and do something to make, you know, to get my drugs, then it was just going to get worse. I had that, that lonely, empty feeling came up again, but for a different reason. You know, it's because I was actually really alone. You know, nobody wanted anything to do with me. I had nothing. I, I was nothing. You know, I mean, I felt like nothing. Isolation marks many addicts arrival at the bottom when they finally have just lost everything. It was really bad. You know, and by this time, my parents, nobody wanted anything to do with me. I lost all contact with any quality, like friends or people in my life. Nate would text me and say, everybody has a place to sleep tonight. Can I put my stuff in your backyard so it doesn't get stolen? And I had to just turn it off. I couldn't turn the text off. I couldn't block him, but I didn't answer. And then he would text me and say, I've only had a bowl of ramen in two days. And I just, you know, broke my heart, but I couldn't do it. And, you know, he texted me, it was snowing. The zipper on my coat's broken. I just couldn't do it. And... I just had enough. It was killing us. Chris and Don had hit their bottom, but Nate was still digging. He was now using meth. The meth went hand in hand with the heroin, and this is when Nate's behavior really got out of control. Meth gave him energy. It made him feel invincible and powerful, but it also made him a different person, a person who was sometimes scary. When I was using, I mean, nobody could really get in my way. You know, there's times where, you know, my parents were afraid of me just because nobody wants to deal with an angry addict and because of my size and things like that. I should mention, Nate's a big guy. He's 6'2", about 250, and when he was on the street, he was running closer to 275. That's a formidable force. And Nate said that because of his size, most people knew to stay out of his way when he was high. Nate was very aggressive at uh, times. And there, I remember he came to the door once and I wouldn't let him in because his dad wasn't home. Don and I had a discussion as to whether Don could actually uh, shoot Nate to save us. Um, he, you know, he never hit us. He never was that. But you could see that aggression. That wasn't our son in there. That kind of brings back one of those deeper memories. I know Chris was at work one day and Nate had been using a lot. And he was really having an aggressive moment. Again, we never got in physical fights and stuff, but he was sitting at a desk and he started pounding on it and lift almost tipped it over. And you, you know, Nate, he's a big, strong guy. And yet for some reason, I was never fearful. Frankly, you get deep into this. Like that day, I was wondering, would I have to go get my gun and shoot him? I, I mean, that, I mean, what side of darkness is that from? I mean, I love Nate dearly. I always have and always will. And yet your mind is split like that. And it occurred to me that, you know, actually, I'd rather he kill me and put me out of this hell that we were going through at that point than me shoot him and regret it the rest of my life. And I mean, man, I mean, that's, that's pure evil. It was while sitting outside on a bitter cold day that Nate received his gift of desperation. People in recovery talk about this feeling that comes when you have finally lost enough that you break a little, but are also desperate enough to do anything, which is exactly where you need to be to make the kind of changes that result in long-term sobriety. 
My moment of clarity, it goes when, I mean, things were at their worst for sure. At the time I was staying at someone's house, but I was only able to stay there for a couple days. I had nowhere to go. And it was, you know, it was winter, it was freezing. And it was just like, and I remember like sitting there outside and I was like, this is bad. Like, this is really bad. I mean, it wasn't gonna get any better from, like, from there. I mean, it, I knew that. Nate reaches out to his parents one more time. Chris told me the story of reconnecting with her son, and she got pretty emotional while remembering the details of that reunion. He texted me and he said, hi, and I texted back and I said, hi, and he said, can I call you? And um, so he called me and he said he'd had enough. And I told him we had to talk about it, that I couldn't give him an answer. So Don and I, sorry, I haven't talked about it for a long time. So um, we, we went and picked him up. He was staying in somebody's garage, and uh, we went and picked him up and brought him home. And after after I talked to him on the phone for a while, and I felt that he was truly sincere. And uh, so when I drove him back over to get his things, I reached over and held his hand, and he just sobbed. Um, and so he moved home, and uh, we were really hopeful. We <laughs> let him get a dog, and. Uh, which I had laughed the first time he was in treatment and parents were saying they were taking care of their kid's pet and we were like, oh, you guys. <laughs> and, um, and he he really did try, but it was too strong for him and, and he relapsed. You know, I had a lot of guilt and shame over five or six years of, of just everything I'd done and everything that I put my parents through and, and my family through. And, you know, I think that I slowly became uncomfortable again after those couple months. And that was when I had that idea that, oh, you know, just using once wouldn't be so bad just for relief for like for one day or whatever. And of course, turned into everyday using again. Nate's parents had gone out of town, but when they returned, they discovered what was going on. He, we came back, it was just so obvious that he had relapsed. And so we told him we couldn't have anything more to do with him unless he completed a 90-day program. He had to he had to care, and so and that he had three days to find something. So he looked, and I looked, and two days before he was supposed to go in, he said he had somewhere he could stay for a couple of nights. And uh, I told him, I said, don't ever contact us again if you go. We'll drive you there, but don't ever contact us again if you go and I am rehoming your dog. And he just went to the room for a while and came back and he said he was gonna stay. He said that he had disappointed every person in his life and he couldn't do that to his dog. <laughs> so um, it was a little rescue pit and we now call her Nate's rescue dog um, because he stayed. And um, after that, he, I've never seen anyone throw their heart and soul into something as much as he did recovery. I remember just sitting there breaking down that saying that I was broken and I knew it at that point that there was no, that, that wasn't an option for me anymore. I didn't know how to like live, how to act, how to think, how to how to do anything really for, uh, you know, I've been using at that point for about six years. So that was when it finally like clicked that I needed to go into treatment and actually like want to do it. Cause it was either that or die.
In recovery, people talk about bottoms, but they also talk about getting sober for yourself. This time around, Nate was ready to get sober for Nate. He checked in at Sarandi Lane in April 2015. He had made it through detox in the hospital wing, and from there transitioned directly into a residential program called Extended Sarandi Lane, or Excel for short. Excel was designed for relapse-prone people. In Excel, patients recover in a therapeutic community, a communal approach to addiction recovery that brings healing through total change in lifestyle. Patients live on campus and attend daily activities, including group therapy, counseling, physical wellness, and relaxation programs, all within a framework designed to build accountability and life skills. I actually got to visit one of the new Excel houses while at the Coburg campus. Imagine a college dorm, only there's no antics and it's remarkably clean. It turns out the cleanliness is partially due to the strict rules that they enforce to whip everyone in shape. Nate initially intended to stay for 30 days, but quickly realized that he needed more time. So 30 days turned into 60 and then 90. I asked Nate why this time was different than all of his previous treatment experiences, which he couldn't commit to. He said a big part of what worked this time were the counselors at Randy Lane. You know, there was Doug and Molly who were just, you know, amazing. They were both people that can relate because they've been there. I didn't anticipate it meaning as much to me as it did as far as the program goes and as far as Doug and Molly. Because I didn't, at that point, I didn't know how to live. I didn't know where to start. I didn't know where to end. I didn't know what to do. And they guided me, basically, and, and helped me. And as long as I was going to put the work in myself, like, they were willing to work just as hard alongside me. To be willing to actually take part in my recovery, and it was almost a relief. Like, I felt I kind of had a purpose, you know, and that was, like, working on myself and getting sober. They have a set schedule. And all those things I found out I need to, like, really to be having to thrive. To have something to work on, because, I mean, for so many years I had just nothing and no direction and anything like that. And I finally, it gave me a taste of having a direction again. He needed 90 days. He needed the program. Um, I heard it described as they just empty out all of those bad things and fill them up with good things. And there's a whole reprogramming that needs to be done that you just don't realize with the addict and the addict's mind and thought process. Excel, you know, it's amazing. It's like a boot camp, they said. You know, they purge. They really call them all the crap. They can't lie. They can't cheat. I don't think he'd ever really been confronted like that before. They beat him up emotionally and cut the crap. Tell me what's going on. Nate said it took him about 30 days before he really came out of his haze and was able to start feeling emotions again and fully engage with the group. His parents visited him for family weekends, where the staff conducts exercises to start dealing with the wreckage head-on. One of the most emotional exercises, I would say, was the fishbowl. They call it fishbowl because, I mean, you're in front of everybody, all the patients and the counselors, and they bring in people that are close to you, and for me it was my parents. This exercise, the fishbowl, it came up in almost every interview we conducted with people who went through treatment at Sarandi Lane. It's emotional. Patients and their family members are asked to write letters that address all the ways that they feel addiction has impacted their relationship. When I had to start thinking about writing what I was going to say, it was really traumatic because you learn to bury a lot of those things, but I wanted to be honest. I didn't want to sugarcoat it. So having to go back over the things that had happened was really, uh, I said it's kind of like PTSD of what I would imagine. In the, in the moment, you just deal with what's there, but when you have to put it all together and the things that happened. One by one, people share their letters in front of the group. Nate's letters to his parents ran eight pages each. In them, he shared details they never knew about. 
and he expressed some of the shame and guilt he had been experiencing. But he said the most impactful part of the exercise was something that came up in his mom's letter. The one thing that really stood out to me was my mom was reading her letter and she told me that she'd come across this piece of paper in her filing cabinet and she took it to my dad because she didn't know what it was. He had written my obituary because he told her that he wouldn't be able to do it when, when I actually died. I wrote it down. It was maybe a half a page brief, but succinct. Do you remember what led up to you sitting down to write that? Oh, the whole ongoing, never ending, it never ends. You know, there's a million and one variations of pain and emotional trauma. You know, it's never going to end. You're in a squirrel cage because every day you think about that eventuality, that's the point of your life. And I thought, well, if he died today, you know, would you be able to think of all the things you really wanted to say? And I wasn't sure. Do you remember any of the things that you put into that, into the obituary? You know, I w that's the thing I don't. I wish I... I, I, it's like my mind, and maybe it's that self-preservation, but I, you know, I've put things in a little box and hidden it away, and I, I do not remember my words. I wish I would have. I was pretty proud of them, I thought. <laughs> yeah, I, I found that in a, a file cabinet, and I read it, and it was so horrifying to me that I threw it away. I, uh, just in the moment, um, I don't remember a lot about it, but I do remember that Don was talking about the person Nate was underneath the addiction, that he was this loving, caring, you know, teddy bear of a person uh, before it took over, and that, um, you know, that's who he chooses to remember. Nate's counselor, Molly, told me a little more about the goals of this exercise. She tells family members that they deserve the opportunity to express their honest emotions to their loved one. She reminds them the patient's in a safe place, and they have lots of support to receive these letters. They're ready to start understanding the harm they've done to others. And following the fishbowl, they bring the patient and the family to debrief, as well as talk about next steps for treatment and recovery. She reminds her patients, it's not an I'm sorry letter. This letter is to inform the family member that you are aware of how your addiction has impacted their life. Um, I think as far as the fishbowl, I remember um, because of our different way of handling and putting aside what had happened, my fear was that Don was not going to get across to Nate how badly he had hurt him, you know. Um, and, you know, that was what, that's what I, I wanted to step in there and protect Don. I wanted Nate to be really aware, you know, that he sent his dad to the emergency room several times, that... Um, his dad was the one who didn't give up on him. While Nate was in full addiction, Don went to the hospital several times with heart problems related to stress. I asked them to tell me what they remembered from that experience. Don was sitting in the chair and he was having heart palpitations and I said, do you think you need to go? And he said, I just don't care anymore. I've had enough. Do you remember that feeling? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna. If it wasn't, if he wasn't gonna get well, we would just, you know, really. I, I felt that I would rather. <laughs> I hate to say it. I felt like I'd rather die than go through this. this sounds horrible to say, but uh, there was a story in the paper, and a distant connection. I knew who it was. Their son had overdosed and died, and uh, I remember thinking and feeling horrible that 
they may not feel like this, but they may be the fortunate ones because we may go through this for another 20 years with the same end result. That just shocked me that I got to the point where I thought, you know, losing Nate was possibly the lesser of two hells. <laughs> I asked them if Nate was aware of his dad's health issues when he was using and how things are going now. One of his biggest fears on the street was that Don was gonna die thinking that his son was nothing but a junkie. And uh, that was really, that weighed heavy on him. Even in his addiction, he, he didn't want that to be who he was. And uh, we had an incident, uh, Don ended up in the emergency room uh, really late one Friday night, and I called Nate, and Nate came over and uh, was there for us. And I knew he would be, and that would. I had a heart attack two months ago, and I'm, I'm fine. They did a stent, and I'm, I'm good to go, but. Uh, but I, I said to Nate, so this would have been a lot different if you'd have been using, you know. I mean, like I said, it, just to be able to call him in the middle of the night uh, was just, just shows you how far things have turned. I asked Don and Chris if they had any advice for parents whose children may still be in active addiction. You can't help them by giving them stuff, obviously. That's the enabling part. What you can do is really get yourself well-educated about the addiction and be prepared to provide whatever means you can towards some program, whether it's Serenity Lane XL. And if you catch them at that susceptible moment when they're, they can be amenable to that, then get them into the program because they're so befuddled, they can't decide. You know, you have to be there to lend that hand to guide him through that initial process to get into a program. Yeah. And, they have to be ready. That's oh, the thing. He has yeah, to, yeah. they have to want it more than you do. And they might talk the right talk. Like I said, we forced Nate into a couple of programs and he was using within a week. But you'll know when they want it more than you do. You'll have to be supportive, but let them drive the move to treatment and then you'll know that they're ready. Do you think it was wrong to try and get him into treatment before? Was there anything else you could have done? I I don't see a lot of benefit out of it. You know, again, it, uh, without insurance, we paid quite a lot when it's not about the money, but I think that neither he nor us were at the point where it would have been successful. So, you know, whatever we did, I would do it different the second time. But like I said, it's a learning process. So was it wrong? No. It was just our hope at the time. Uh, we couldn't just do nothing. Um, so it, it's part of the path that got Nate to where he is now. And uh, we are just so happy with where our family is now that, no, it, it was just one of our steps. <laughs> Nate's parents told me a story about Thanksgiving this year. It was one of the few sober holidays they've enjoyed together in a while. They were driving home after a big family dinner where Nate had watched all of the cousins his age interacting with their partners and their babies, and his parents watched him in the rearview mirror. He's clearly thinking about what he had just seen, and they could tell that something was bothering him. Chris said the old Nate would have just let his insecurities eat away at him, but Instead of staying quiet, he opened up to them. He talked about the things that he worried he missed out on during his six years of using. This was just a small example, but it was Nate using the tools that he learned in treatment to share his feelings. Chris said he doesn't have to dwell on them anymore. He can identify and communicate what's making him sad and move on with a plan for how he might want to change it. As of today, 
Nate's been sober for almost two years. He's living with some other sober guys in an Oxford house, a transitional home for people in recovery. He says things aren't perfect all the time, but that lonely feeling he used to have is gone now. He's happy, and for the first time, he's comfortable in his own skin. I've worked the hardest for this, like for my sobriety than anything I have in my life. I'm happy, I'd say 95% of the time. Yeah, I wake up pretty grateful. I mean, the gratitude is a huge thing for me. It's like when I've gone from freezing cold living outside to, you know, even having like a warm, safe place to live, wherever it is, it's, it's, that's a huge thing. And then everything else is just icing on the cake. Chris said that in some ways, Nate has a happier future ahead of him, specifically because he went through his struggle with addiction. She said if he hadn't been an addict, he likely would have just become an unhappy adult, someone who drinks too much to deal with a stressful job. Instead, Nate is fulfilled by things he never appreciated before. We were talking about him being grateful, uh, being content. It's not things that make you happy. I think he is headed for a good, content life because he's not trying to fill it up with things. So I, I'm very hopeful for him. She told me about something that Nate recently said to someone who's struggling the way that he once was. You'll never have to feel this way again, which is pretty powerful when you feel so bad about what you've done to people. And, and I think one of the things that's helped Nate is that we have not had an issue with forgiving him. Initially, we just, that's all our conversations were about was his recovery and this or that. And then we realized that the longer it goes on, the less our conversations are about the fact that he's in recovery and his addiction, it's more about life. So I feel like we're getting back to normal, whatever that is. I want to leave you with one last piece of advice from Nate's mom. She had this to say about what kind of family is affected by addiction. A lot of people's reaction trying to make you feel better would be, they would say, you know, why you? You guys do the right thing. You, you know, you, and I, my answer was, why not us? We're not protected. It doesn't just happen to other people or, you know, people who've had a more troubled past. And that was, that was my feeling right from the very first was, why not us? Thank you for listening to this episode of Voices of Recovery. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. In the meantime, follow us on Facebook for updates and sneak peeks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave us a review. It helps build our audience and lets people know about what we're doing. Voices of Recovery was created by Monique and Jackie Danziger and produced by Serenity Lane Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers. This episode was recorded and edited by Jackie Danziger. Writing and production assistance by Monique Danziger. All the music featured in this episode was written by Sammy Gallo. Thank you to everyone at Serenity Lane who helped provide additional information for this episode and who helped make this show possible. And it's not too late. He's 35. And when you're my age, I'm 68. Uh, do I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <get close. laughs> Good thing I'm married. <laughs> Keeps me straight.